Jeff Mack not only managed to write an entire children's book, but he really captures the essence of what Peter's great sermon in Acts chapter 2 brings to us. It brings good news, and it brings bad news. And really what I want you to think about most today is, which is it bringing for you, for, for you personally? Um, it's not just about your circumstances. It's not about whether you have a happy, optimistic, bunny personality. It's about what you believe and what you will do with Jesus. Okay? And it is Peter's first sermon. It's the first one by anybody other than Jesus, really, in the, in the New Testament. And it is pointedly evangelistic. And I know at, at some point it's easy to think, oh, Larry, you're preaching to the choir. We got this. But... It's interesting, Peter's, um, the purpose of Peter's sermon was to bring a group of religious people, they were called devout, um, to a right faith in Jesus. Uh, it really is within the realm of possibility to be both devout and to be truly without faith in Jesus. Um, Roger Green tells a story, for instance, of John Charles Wesley. Uh, the founders of the, of the Methodist church. Um, long ago in the 1700s, they were two of 19 children born to Samuel, who was an Anglican clergyman, and, and Susanna Wesley. And uh, both these boys went off to Oxford and studied there. And while they were there, um, Charles started with a number of his friends something they began that would later give rise to the Methodist church called the Holy Club. They started a holy club, and they covenanted together, this club did, to live disciplined Christian lives given to the serious study of the Bible, to prayer, to fasting, and to charitable works. John would also join this club and eventually become its leader. And in 1735, these two brothers embarked on a journey from England to the United States, to America, uh, to Georgia, to be missionaries to the American Indians that were living there. And... Uh, while they were on that journey, they had doubts about their experience of their salvation, and neither John nor Charles could find assurance that he was indeed the child of God by grace. Imagine that. Missionaries sent out, unsure of whether they themselves even were, were bona fide Christians. They returned to England believing their lives and ministry had failed, and John Wesley wrote of this experience in Georgia. He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Um, see, you really can be devout and, in Wesley's terms, unconverted. You could be at Northwake every time the doors open and not having a genuine saving faith in Jesus. It's possible. And so what I really want you to do today as we listen to Peter's sermon, I want you to, uh, to do something we're really not good at. I want you to self-assess. I want you to be honest about your own standing before God and whether or not you really do have a, a bona fide, genuine, saving faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so let's bow and ask the Father to ready us to do that when we'll look at Acts chapter 2 again together. Father, have mercy on us now by your Spirit. Take the Word and apply it with precision and skill to our hearts that we might truly see, truly and rightly see how we stand before you. And that your spirit 
might bring comfort to those who believe and might bring repentance and faith to those who are unsure today. Lord, have mercy. This is your work, and we ask you to do it for us and in us in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we've been witnessing a really uh, remarkable, uh, amazing thing going on amongst the disciples in Acts chapter 2 at a time called Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the disciples spilled out of that upper room. They're out into the streets where thousands of people could hear them, quite possibly at the temple. And they are speaking in languages they did not learn, um, telling of the mighty works of God. But the reaction, if you remember from last week, from the crowd to this was mixed. Um, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. And it's this mocking response that gives rise to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 that we want to sit under and listen to today. So they, they make the assertion that these men are drunk. And Peter, standing with the eleven lifts up his voice and addresses them and says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered (coughs) through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, Joel said, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they they will prophesy. This is a different Peter, isn't it? Um, Than the one who Just the accusation of a confrontation with a young maid, a servant girl, around that charcoal fire, whether or not he would be witness of Jesus or not, and he would deny. He would deny that he ever knew him. Now that same Peter, having witnessed the resurrection and being full of the Spirit, now stands up and he's going to confront thousands of people. He quotes from the Old Testament He's preaching to Jews, so the Old Testament is so important in this. And he quotes the prophet Joel, and he informs the Jews gathered there that what they saw unfolding was not a result of spirits with a little s, but the spirit with a big s. Um, He says it's too early in the morning for them to be drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. He says, what you are witnessing is the initial fulfillment of what Joel predicted some 600 years before, the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. The Spirit has now been poured out on God's people, and everyone is prophesying. Sons and daughters, young and old, even slaves, they're all prophesying in your language, Peter says. In the Old Testament, that would happen on an individual from time to time. There'd be a special pouring out of the Spirit for a specific mission or empowerment, but now it's on everyone. 
These are the last days. The Spirit's been poured out. This is the good news. Okay? But Peter continues to quote Joel, and it goes like this. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And that last phrase, the day of the Lord, to these Jews would bring to mind all the language of the prophets who taught about a coming day of judgment called the day of the Lord. Um, Here's an example from Isaiah of some of that language. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I'll make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. The prophets predicted that there was coming a terrible day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and it would be the worst news for many. Now, there's associated with the day of the Lord, all this, you heard it from Isaiah and Joel, all this cosmological imagery, right? Stars falling out of the sky, the moon like blood, the sun turning dark, uh, smoke, blood, uh, all these terrible, terrible images. They are highly symbolic, but they are ever present in this imagery. So it wouldn't surprise me that at the day of the Lord that there is cosmological imagery that literally happens. But at the same time, clearly the The symbolism is there. It's symbolic of a great judgment. That's what it represents. Um, That's going to be really bad news on that day. Um, But he extends the quote of Joel one more time. One more verse. He says, And it came to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there's a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of good news. Cry out to the Lord who is your judge and he will spare you. And you today, you want to make sure as you listen to Peter's sermon that this mercy is applied to you on that day. Okay. Make sure that this mercy is applied to you on that day. And Peter explains why that judgment is coming. Why it's not all just good news. And he, he does it by telling us who Jesus is. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It's really an amazing portrait of who Jesus actually is. Okay? He is a man who was tested, attested to by God through a bunch of miracles that God did through him. 
He was given over by God's own hand and God's plan to his enemies, and they crucified him, but God raised him up. And you notice the language there. The cross was part of God's plan. Okay? It was not a mistake. Many in, in, the, in the crowd there would have been tempted to have written Jesus off as the Messiah because he died on the cross. But Peter is saying, no, the cross was part of the plan. Um, Ajit Fernando writes about a prominent Buddhist writer in Sri Lanka who once told him that he regarded Christ as a failure because he was defeated by the very wickedness he sought to combat. No, Peter is crystal clear. That is not the case. The cross was part of God's foreknowledge and plan. Okay? Now, though, um, Peter did not always believe that, though. He didn't always get that the cross was an essential part of God's plan. So, you remember uh, back in Matthew 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, when Jesus said that, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Okay. Peter now gets it, though. He's convinced. Where he once thought this should never happen to Christ, now he sees, having witnessed the resurrection and being full of the Spirit of God, now he understands that it was God's doing. But it's funny and this, this makes us scratch our heads. In verse 23, it says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. So on the one hand, it's God's plan. But on the other hand, it's their responsibility for crucifying him. And it's interesting. Peter doesn't even flinch to put these two things up right next to each other. God is sovereign, and you are responsible for the choices that you made. What happened was God's plan, and you are responsible for it. So however you think about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, the intent of the Bible is that they would happily coexist. They fit together, and it's not, nobody flinches at that teaching here. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that picture. I love that imagery. Um, the pangs there are actually like birth pangs. The, the word that's used is often showed with birth pangs, not death pangs. So it's like labor pains. And one writer has said that the, the grave can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the baby in, right? Uh, it's going to be overpowered um, because of God's work in him. This is good news. Right? He goes on now and quotes another prophet so that they would believe who Jesus is. David, King David, says, Concerning him, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Okay. This is from Psalm 16. It's a psalm of King David. And that phrase right in the middle is of special interest to Peter. 
where David says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let, my, uh, or, or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter seizes on that. And he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of of that we are all witnesses. See, Peter says, what David wrote could not have been fulfilled in his own life. He's been dead a thousand years almost. I can take you outside of town, Peter says, and show you his tomb. His body decayed there. So this was not a prophecy about David. Um, He says it was about the Messiah. It was about the Christ. Um, This thousand-year prophecy has come true. You add to this prophecy. Now he says... There are, we are all witnesses of it. There are eyewitnesses. You remember it was so important that that 12th disciple that was chosen to replace Judas be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Okay. They stand up now and say, we are all eyewitnesses of the resurrection. This prophecy has been fulfilled. Um, just, just as it was predicted by David. Verse 33 says, being, Peter goes on, says, being therefore, Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, are, you, are, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So just 10 days before, remember, Jesus ascended to the, to the heavens, the throne of God, where he is seated at the right hand of Father. He's exalted there. Um, from there, he has been given the Holy Spirit by the Father, and he has poured out the Spirit on his people. That's what they are witnessing, just like Jesus promised. Okay. It's interesting. In John 7, Jesus spoke long before this. On the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. But see, now in our story, Jesus has been glorified. Ten days before, He ascended to the exalted place of the right hand of the Father. And so the Spirit has been sent, and Peter says, that's what everybody's witnessing. That's what you're saying. It's not Spirit's. It's the Spirit at work here. And this is good news. Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled. David's prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus' promise has come to pass. He goes on and says, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, two lords, one Lord says to another Lord in the heavens, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. And he quotes Psalm 110 to prove that Jesus is that other Lord that's in the heavens. There's the Father and the Son. The one Lord says to the other, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies uh, your footstool. Um, Jesus' identity is established as Lord. Who is Jesus? He is Lord. Bono said it well. YouTube's Bono in a recent interview. Um, he said, I think a defining question for a Christian is who was Christ? And I don't think you're let off easily by saying he's a great thinker or a great philosopher because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. Bono's absolutely right. Who is Jesus? He is exalted as Lord. So this morning, you're sitting under this sermon that Peter's preaching. Does your life bear witness to some, as someone who believes that Jesus is Lord? Do you bear the marks of that? And then in that same passage, he confronts them with more bad news. He said, Jesus is the one Joel prophesied about. Jesus is the one David prophesied about. He's, he's exalted as Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You crucified him. You can almost sense Peter pointing at them. You crucified him. You did. You are the ones who've crucified Christ. Is Peter saying, that this crowd of thousands drove the nails into the cross when he says, you crucified him? That's not possible. Um, is he even saying that they were present as witnesses? That's probably not likely, that everyone in this massive crowd was at the cross when Jesus was crucified. In what sense are they culpable for Jesus' death? Um, let me ask you to think about another situation. Uh, if you've been watching the news at all, you're aware of just a great tragedy that's unfolding um, in Missouri right now, in Ferguson, Missouri, right? Surrounding the death of an 18-year-old young man named Michael Brown. Okay. Who is culpable for Michael Brown's death? That's really a lot of what you're reading about in blogs and stuff. Is it just one police officer? Is it Michael Brown because of his conduct and what he was doing? Or is it bigger than that? Are there more people that are in some way culpable for the situation that's been created there? Is it, are there community leaders? Are there police chiefs? Are there pastors? Are there people who just chose to look the other way and not get involved in a community that had fallen into a terrible state? Who's culpable? Now, regardless of what you think about that situation in, in Ferguson, um, that's the thinking that Peter's employing about the cross. It's not just the people who drove the nails that are responsible for the death of Jesus. That there's a liability and a culpability for, for thousands of good people who either actively or passively rejected Jesus that they are in some way guilty of that great act. In what sense 
did they crucify him? Well, I suppose, in a sense, uh, it was their, for their sins that he died. And that would be true of us all. But more particularly, their rejection of Jesus, even by their indifference, aligned themselves with, the, with those who crucified him. Either you're a disciple of Jesus or you're not. There's no middle ground. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Does it mark you? Are you sure? Is your faith in Him such that it marks you? Because these were devout people. These were people of the book. Okay, That's why so much Old Testament's being quoted. They believed it. They knew it. Um, if we were to update that into our day and today's parlance, they were church folk. Okay? Regular attenders, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, they were there. And Peter is saying that good religious people who had no actual hand in Jesus' death are liable for it. John Piper says this is a shocking and stunning thing for people to hear and extremely hard to admit. They, these are religious people that Peter's talking to. They're moral people. They are worshiping people. They are people who know hundreds of verses in God's Word by heart. And he's telling them that their minds are totally at odds with God. They claim to know God. They claim to love God and worship God and follow God. And Peter says they are diametrically opposed to God. They are anti-God because they do not follow and believe in Jesus. You know, whenever we read these stories in history, one of the things that, that we try to do is, hey, find yourself in the story. Where are you in the story? Where do you fit in this story? And this morning, really, it's really an important question. Are you numbered amongst that crowd who do not truly believe in Jesus and thereby are responsible for his, his death by your indifference to him? Good, religious people. Devout, they were called. And by their rejection of Christ, Peter says they are liable for his death. Have you, deny, have, have you denied Christ? Have you opposed Him? Have you failed to believe in Him at any point in your life? Would those things describe you now? Even though you're here in church. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. And I don't even think I need to explain that. Many of you have experienced before, and some of you are experiencing it right now. It's that realization, oh no, what have I done? What have I done in my refusal to follow Christ, in my denying of Christ? What must I do? And Peter says, you must repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What must we do? That we can do anything is sheer grace. David Gooding writes, They had murdered God's Son. He was offering them His Spirit. They had crucified the second person of the Trinity. He was offering them the third. It's all grace. It's all grace. And I love what Philip Yancey writes. He reminds us of a movie called The Last Emperor. Maybe you've seen it. Um, It's a fascinating portrait of a young child who was anointed as the last emperor of China. And he lives a life of insane luxury with thousand servants, right? And one day his brother asks him, what happens, emperor, when you do wrong? And the boy emperor replies, when I do wrong, someone else is punished. And he takes a a vase and he breaks it and one of the servants is beaten in his presence. And Philip Yancey wisely says, in Christianity, Jesus has reversed that ancient pattern. When the servants sin, the king is punished. Grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. What must we do to, to embrace this grace? Peter says we must repent. Okay. We turn from trusting and treating in a Christ who is far less than he is. Most common today, Kevin DeYoung calls it the therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be so hard on ourselves. We repent of a Jesus that we've made up, and we trust in the Jesus that Peter has proclaimed here. The God-man whose incarnation and ministry make it possible for him to be our Savior. The God-man whose death on the cross paid for your sins. The God-man whose resurrection, whose victory over death was unstoppable. The God-man who is now exalted to the right hand of the Father and has sent the Holy Spirit upon all mankind. The God-man who is Lord of all. Is he your, is he your Lord? Okay. Will you follow and believe in that Jesus? Not some lesser Jesus. And as evidence of that following, will you be baptized? Will you publicly identify yourself in Jesus' name? Peter says, be baptized. Um, Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It's not that baptism is how we get forgiven. It is probably best understood as a reflection of that forgiveness on the basis of our forgiveness, not in order to secure our forgiveness. But you get a sense how important baptism is in following Jesus. Have you trusted in Christ, and now are you willing to follow Him in baptism? That's what Peter says we must do. And the promise of the Spirit will be yours. It's not just for those near, but far away. People not just who are near to God spiritually, but it's a promise for those who are far away spiritually. There's grace enough for you. It's not just for those who are near culturally, it's for those who are far away culturally and geographically from Jesus and those Jews of the first century. We're pretty far away from that. 
it's for us. It's, it's for India. It's for South India where Jeff and Brigida are going to share the message with the Muslims there. The promise is for them. And Peter urges and pleads them with many more words. This is just a summary of Peter's sermon. Okay? Just a short summary. There's a remarkable story that's told by Leighton Ford of a guy named Joe Cumming who was a fellow at the Faith and Culture Center at Yale. And through a, a set of circumstances that I'm sure must have been remarkable, he found himself on one of the Muslim high and holy days in Lebanon with a, uh, an opportunity to meet with the Lebanese Ayatollah, who was one of the most influential Muslim clerics um, for Shiite Muslims in that whole region. He says it was like getting an audience with the Pope on Christmas Eve. Okay? It was that kind of unbelievable opportunity. And he was told he would only get five minutes with the sheik. Um, he would get five minutes, and at four minutes and 55 seconds, his assistant would stand up, and Joe was to join him, stand up, and was to exit the room. And so Joe is trying to figure out what's he going to say? What's he going to say to this man, this remarkable uh, man that he's got this privilege to to speak to. As he prayed about what he could say, he saw a banner across the road that read in Arabic, the victory of blood over the sword. And this meant that when the enemies of Muhammad's grandson, Hussein, came to kill him, he could have called on God to kill them. But instead, he laid down his sword and was massacred, becoming a sign of forgiving the sins of others. So that when the Ayatollah asked Joe what he had to say, Joe brought up that banner and he said, doesn't that banner mean that Hussein won a greater victory by laying down his life. Yes, said the sheik. That's what it means. And Joe said, that's what I believe about Jesus. He could have killed his enemies, but instead he laid down his life for them in love and prayed for their forgiveness. I believe that that is the key to break the cycle of violence and revenge in the world. And the Ayatollah turned to his followers who were in the room with them and said, I totally agree with every word this Christian man of God has just said. The secretary stood up. Joe's time is gone. Joe stood up to leave, and the, and the Ayatollah stops him and says, where are you going? There's more I want to talk about. And he spent two hours with Joe talking with him about Jesus. It's really a remarkable thing, isn't it? He could have killed his enemies, but instead he laid down his life for them. And so these, this band of people that P Peter's preaching to, um, their only hope is found in the one that they crucified. Okay. That's grace. That's good news. That's the very best of news. So let me go back to that first story about those two brothers, John and Charles Wesley. To John's question, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? The story goes that the answer to his question came shortly after his return from America. Or both he and Charles were influenced by Moravian friends who bore witness to salvation by grace in Christ. And Charles Wesley wrote that he experienced Pentecost. He said in his journal that the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. And then this hymn writer, he would write between six and 7,000 hymns, wrote a hymn to commemorate the day of his salvation. Scholars can't quite figure out which one it is, but one of the likely candidates is one that we sing here. It says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? And the closing stanza is this, No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in Him is mine. 
alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. The article writes that until their conversions, the Wesleys had what John described as a fair summer religion. They were both ordained. They both preached, taught, wrote, composed hymns, and even gave themselves to missionary work, all to no avail. They had not Christ, he writes, or rather Christ did not have them, and they lived by good works, not by faith. Acts 2 Our portion today ends with this verse. So those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so as, as you sit under Peter's sermon, you need to know that today could be your day. This could be your day. Okay, We could tag on to this story and say 3,001 were saved from Peter's sermon. Many more have been. But if you do not have a confidence that your faith has been put in Christ such that He is the Savior, crucified by the plan of God on your behalf, raised from the dead on the third day for newness of life for you for all eternity, then this is your chance to place your trust in Christ. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a closing song that is that prayer. And I'd just like to ask you, as you sing it, if you're not sure about your faith in Christ, let this song on your lips Be your prayer, your confession of faith in Christ today. So let's stand. Let's join with the team as they lead us in this song prayer.